come celebrate with me five years on the People Scientist Podcast. You are listening to The People Scientist. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, am a professor in nutrition with additional expertise in neuroscience and physiology. My goal is to give you practical and tangible information that is rooted in scientific evidence so that you can walk away from this podcast with the tools you need to lead the healthy life you want to live. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 158. Today is a very special episode, and the most special episode yet, in my opinion, because this weekend marks the five-year anniversary of this podcast. Five whole years. It really is actually pretty emotional for me to think back on who I was and what I was doing five years ago when I first started this show. I actually remember that day pretty well. I remember sitting in Central Park on a picnic blanket, filming a video to share with you all that I decided to start this podcast. I remember so clearly the way I felt on that day. I remember that I felt excited to be living in New York City I still felt a little bit uncertain and and lacked a bit of confidence in being a neuroscientist, but I was sure that I really wanted to make this podcast. And I remember that I decided to start this show because I had moved from Canada to New York City, and after two years of being away, I wanted to share nutrition information with my family and friends regularly. And when I was in Canada, I had interacted with patients and study participants in clinical trials quite regularly. And in those ways, I could impart nutrition knowledge and have an impact on the community. But when I moved to New York City, I really missed that connection with my family and the community. Whenever I would go back home, my family would ask me questions and advice on their diet and health. And I thought how it would be so much more efficient if I could just post some content about the latest scientific information to promote health and to share that with my family and friends. And if anyone else happened to listen in, then that would be great. As I reflect on my life in the last five years, I realize that a lot has changed. And that I felt a lot of emotions, both good and bad, in the last five years. My relationships, the cities I lived in, my career, my hobbies, they all changed and evolved. And I changed and evolved too. One thing that I appreciate from doing this podcast is that it has given me a time capsule of my life. In fact, certain episodes are tied to particular events or emotions in my life. Like I remember episodes 95 to 100 were during a really rough time in my life relationship-wise. And when I look back on the dance videos I did for those episodes or think back on topics, it transports me back to those days, and back to the emotions I felt at that point in time. I remember episode 50 was the first episode I published when the pandemic had first hit. And all the fear, all the uncertainty that was felt in New York City and around the world during that time. I remember the city was such a quiet place back then. Really, it seemed like only hospital staff seemed to remain, and I happened to be one of the hospital staff, so I stayed in New York during the whole pandemic. 
I remember back then they had curfews for a while. And I remember walking the streets at 10 p.m. and all the restaurants were closed. All of the city lights were off. The whole city was dark and quiet. And what a unique and strange time that was. I remember episode 54 was about using art and dance to cope with stress and how that episode was so needed as we all started to adapt in the city to staying inside our tiny apartments and what we chose to turn to for solace and coping with stress at that time. And I remember how I felt on February 24th, 2019, when I published my very first episode on this show. When I think back on that day and look at that video, I remember feeling nervous, excited, and unsure about what this would develop into, and unsure even if my family and friends would actually listen. But I can say that after five years, I am really happy that I did this and that I continue to do this because the greatest thing about all of this is how it has connected me to all of you. There are many of you listening right now that I would not have met, that I would not have been able to be connected with if I didn't do this podcast. So I truly would not have had it any other way. So thank you for coming along this journey with me for the last five years. So for today's special five-year episode, I was pondering what I should do as the topic. And as I am in a fairly reflective mode as of late, I realized that there were lessons that I learned along the way, particularly because of doing this podcast, that seemed to make a really positive impact on my life. So today I'd like to highlight those five lessons that I learned in the hopes that these same lessons may have a positive impact on you too. So let's go through those, shall we? But before we do, let me share with you a relevant foregone fact, where I share scientific finding from long ago. For today's foregone fact, I am choosing a biographical story from a book that I'm currently reading. So today I bring you the autobiographical story of Viktor Frankl, a psychologist who wrote the book A Man's Search for Meaning, published back in 1946. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the concentration camps during World War II. And as a psychologist, he in this book reflects back on his experiences during those times, the decisions he made, and how he was able to have perseverance in the face of some of the hardest hardships. Remarkably, he recounts much of his story in a positive light, saying that even in these dire situations, he learned, he grew, and he was able to find solace. For example, in the book, Frankel describes an incident where he was forced to march in severe cold weather with little clothing while carrying a very heavy load. He describes in detail how the physical, psychological, and emotional pain of this was really unbearable. Pondering the questions, why are they making me do this? For how long will I survive this? In that moment, Frankl had some realizations. That even in the face of extreme physical and psychological pain, in a circumstance where he seemed to be powerless, he still possessed some level of freedom and some level of power. And that power was the fact that he could choose his attitude and he could choose his response to the situation. Frankel understood that while he couldn't control the externalities of the scenario, 
that he still had the power to decide how he could internally respond to that suffering. And this insight became the central point of Frankel's approach to a therapy called logotherapy, in which he emphasized the importance of finding meaning and finding purpose even in the most challenging scenarios. The reason why I chose this as the foregone fact for today is because as I reflect back on my last five years, I don't look at the hard times as bad, but I choose to look back on them as times of growth, as moments of friendship and support, moments of contrast to the good, which I feel makes the good even better. And sometimes in scenarios such as reading this book, reading another person's life stories, and the hardships like Viktor Frankl went through, that can provide an important perspective as well. So if you by chance are interested in reading that book, I do recommend it. And again, it was titled A Man's Search for Meeting by Viktor Frankl. Now, how about we get into today's episode on the top five things I have learned in the last five years from this podcast. Now, the top thing that I feel I have learned is not something that I found in a scientific study, and it is not something that someone told me in a classroom, but it is a lesson I feel like I've learned through life experience in the last five years. And that is because I chose to center my life around the things I love, I have not regretted a day in my life. And I do this podcast with a happy heart because of that. I chose from day one to center this podcast only around the things I loved. I choose to center it around my family and my friends because I make these episodes for you. I center it around one of my greatest passions, dance, and I center it around topics I enjoy learning about. If I got to impart new knowledge on my family and friends, if I got to grow as a dancer, if I got to grow as a scientist during this podcast, then I was happy and I enjoyed doing it. And that, I think, is truly what has kept me going in this podcast for five years. And according to my episode 152, that passion is the key to perseverance. Now, it is tempting for me to center my goals for this podcast on externalities like money to make, popularity, and sponsorship deals. And believe me, I have considered these opportunities when they arose. But in my opinion, if I were to center my podcast around those things, I wouldn't be truly happy. This podcast has become a passion project for me. It has allowed me to become a, a better dancer and a better scientist. And I've met some of the best people in my life right now through this podcast. And if I had focused on the externalities of money and sponsorship deals, I don't think that I would have grown in these same ways. I think if I had done that, then the podcast would have probably taken a different approach to focus on what the majority of people wanted, as opposed to what I'm passionate about. I was tempted at times to change the podcast to more so tell people what they want to hear, as opposed to what is factual. But as a scientist, I just couldn't do that. I believe in pursuing the truth, and that's really important to me. So by doing this podcast for the last five years, it has taught me a valuable lesson. And that is that if I choose to focus upon what truly matters to me and staying true to who I am, then I'll never regret the time and effort that I put into things. And I'll do them with a happy heart. And I look back on the last five years really happy 
because this podcast is a reflection of who I truly am. And that is what will keep me doing this podcast for years to come. It will be my life's time capsule. In line with that, I think the second lesson and one of the best lessons I learned from doing the podcast came from episode 127, The Pursuit of Happiness Lies in Juxtaposition. This episode is about the three facets of happiness. For the longest time, it was thought, according to philosophers like Aristotle, that happiness was dependent on two things, hedonism and eudaimonia. Hedonism means that happiness could be obtained from things like money, access to food, and access to things that make life pleasurable. And eudaimonia means for our life to have purpose and meaning, like to raise children, to volunteer, to support an effort, to make a discovery. But Oishi and Westgate a few years ago published a paper where they introduced a third component to the pursuit of happiness, and that was wisdom and perspective change. They speculate that to be truly happy, we must experience a lot of things in life, both good and bad. These life experiences give us the opportunity to develop gratitude and to truly develop wisdom. That The bad times can really make us appreciate the good. For example, if we always had the perfect fitting pair of shoes, would we ever really truly appreciate them? Or can we only fully appreciate those shoes if we experience what a terrible pair of shoes feels like and the pain that comes with an ill-fitting pair of shoes? Because then when we do put on that perfect fitting pair, ah, how great that does feel. And as I become older, I feel that this is something I've really grown in in the most. I appreciate the negative emotions and the negative experiences, actually. That the quote-unquote bad emotions are not fully bad, I feel. I think that the hard emotions can give life meaning and importance and contrast and opportunities to grow and learn. For example, I remember once when I was training in dance, hearing that the most beautiful dancers don't dance like that because they've had an easy life, but they dance like that because of the hardships that they've lived through. The best dancers are the best, not because they have mastered the technique perfectly, but the best dancers can portray stories and emotions to the viewer because they themselves have experienced pain and loss. And they take that pain and loss and they turn it into dance that can make someone else feel the same thing. The best artists are the artists that make us feel something. So we can choose to reframe our thinking of quote-unquote negative emotions and think of them as energy to be transformed. Like feeling anger, feeling sadness, fear. This, really when it comes down to the biology, this is energy. And so there is power in those emotions. Like for example, think of a time when you felt really angry. Didn't that fuel you? Didn't that electrify you? So we can choose to take that energy from these emotions and transform them into something meaningful and positive and impactful, like creating music, dance, painting, drawing, poetry, writing, and turning it and transforming those emotions into something else. The greatest artists, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, are the artists that have had great losses and pain 
in their life and turning that life experience into art that is cathartic and meaningful. This is the greatest coping mechanism for pain and loss in my opinion. And I try to share that sentiment with people around me. And back in episode 53 and episode 54, I talked about this when the pandemic first hit and how art and dance and other forms of expression can be really effective ways for us to transform the energy of those hard times into something beautiful. And I think as I become older, and as I experience more pain and loss in my life, this seems to resonate with me more and more. And there is a famous quote from a movie, The Dead Poet Society, that always stuck with me and is relevant here. And the quote reads, Medicine, law, business, engineering. These are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. So in line with this, the third best lesson that I feel like I've learned in the last five years was how to make lasting friendships as an adult from episode 128. I really enjoyed learning that being a good friend takes time and it takes effort, which are both finite resources within us. As such, it is thought that we can have only four to five really good friends at a time because we only have so much effort and time within us to contribute to a good friendship. So what determines a lasting friendship? Well, according to Aristotle, it is a friend of virtue in which we take effort to identify what is important to our friend and ask how we can help them in that journey, that we truly want to see our friend succeed and that we take action to help support them in that and that it is reciprocal, that they do the same for us. For example, if any one of my friends ever took note and said, Hey, Stephanie, I see that you really enjoy dance. Is there any way I can help you with that? Like, can I help you with your dance lessons, taking videos, giving you ideas for choreography? Or if they said, Hey, I thought of you when I heard this song and thought you might enjoy it for your next dance class. And how much that would mean to me. Because it means that they took note of what was important to me and they wanted to positively contribute that to support me. So if we want to bring our friendships up to, the, up to the next level, taking note of what is important in our friends' lives and taking measures to help support them and see them grow, help see them grow in their passions and goals, I think is a great way in how to make lasting friendships as children and as adults. And if we want to ponder for the next few seconds which friendships we want to put more effort into and think about what our friends' passions are, what's important to them. And sometimes a simple question on asking how we can support them or a simple gesture can really make the world of a difference. Now, the other types of friendships that Aristotle hypothesized are less likely to last in lasting friendships are friendships of utility and friendships of pleasure. Now, friends of pleasure are friendships in which the relationship is based off of a shared interest or a shared activity. Like, let's say a friend that we take a dance class with, a friend that we play music with, a friend that we like to watch movies with. These friendships are good, and they help give us enjoyment in our life, and they do serve a good purpose. 
However, if the foundation of the friendship of virtue I mentioned earlier is not there, and if this activity fades, like let's say you stop taking the dance class, let's say you're not interested in watching the movies anymore, then it raises the question what is left of the friendship. Will the friendship dissolve then? The same thing is true for friends of utility. These are relationships that are based on convenience, proximity. For example, friends that we work with, friends that we live near. Now ponder, if you were to move away or find a new job, do you think that that friendship would last? And if we want it to last, then we can ask that earlier question, what can we do to help support our friend in their passions and goals and to make efforts toward that? And in this episode, episode 128, I also talk about how to find new friends and some other interesting tips in that context. So if that interests you, then I encourage you to go back to that episode. Now, the other lesson that I grew in from this podcast that helped me in my relationships is a general increase in my emotional intelligence as a result of this show. For example, I grew in my understanding of general emotions by doing the podcasts on like the neuroscience of jealousy, the neuroscience of embarrassment, of anger, of anxiety, of perseverance, of greed. And by understanding the science behind these emotions, it helped me to understand myself and to understand people better. It gave me a comprehension as to how to interact with others in a more empathic way. Let me give an example. In episode 134, I talk about the neuroscience of embarrassment, which I feel like was a really interesting episode for me. Because we all know what embarrassment feels like. But do we truly know what embarrassment is about? Do we know what is going on within our brain when we feel embarrassed? So in in that episode, I talk about that. I actually talk about how there are four different types of embarrassment, interestingly. For example... The first type of embarrassment is called unintentional and unaware. This, for example, would be if we walk out of the restroom with toilet paper stuck to our shoe or if we walk out of our house with our zipper undone. Like We didn't mean to do this and we are unaware that this is happening. The second type of embarrassing scenario is unintentional but aware. Like if we tripped and fell in a puddle of mud, for example. We definitely did not mean to do that, but we are completely aware that that happened. Then there is intentional and unaware, like someone who is intentionally doing something but completely unaware of how embarrassing it may be coming off, like someone extensively praising themselves or someone wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm sexy, and legitimately thinking that they are sexy, not meant as a joke. And then lastly, the last type of embarrassment is intentional aware. And this is often seen in stand-up comedians where they are intentionally doing a bit that is self-deprecating or awkward to incite laughter. Now, typically the first two types that I described are the most common and seem to incite the most feelings of embarrassment when they happen. And when we feel embarrassed in those types of scenarios, it it recruits brain regions like the insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. And that can result in the feeling of social pain. Now, to really understand embarrassment, it actually is the result of us violating a social, a social norm in front of an audience. And therefore, it often has to do with concern for our reputation and our self-image. And I think simply knowing that, that that is the root cause of the social pain caused from embarrassment, that we violated a social norm and now are concerned for our self-image, 
that that is helpful in understanding why we feel that emotion. Particularly for young children, because this emotion of embarrassment begins to be observed around the age of two to four when a child begins to become more self-aware. When they are around more people, like in a school setting, and when they begin to observe social norms. And at this point, it is completely normal for a young child to not know how to handle this feeling of embarrassment and social pain. And they, as they begin to learn and kind of navigate what the social norms are. So then we can imagine that as a child increasingly becomes placed in more audience and public types of situations, like in a classroom full of students, that their chances of feeling embarrassment may rise. And they may not know yet how to understand or regulate or manage that emotion. We do understand that certain brain regions involved in feeling social and emotional pain are activated or recruited during embarrassing moments, such as the insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. And so now it raises the question, does that biology and does that psychological understanding help us cope with embarrassment better? Well, because we understand this social pain of embarrassment has to do with the concern of our self-image, assuring ourselves or assuring the embarrassed person that this moment does not define them, and that we have a whole life of other experiences that define us can be a really helpful thing to think about or state. Sharing embarrassing stories with the person that is feeling embarrassed can also help them feel not alone as well. Also feeling confident in our self-image and not caring about what other people think can be helpful too. But this is just a little example that I wanted to share of the multiple emotions that I grew in understanding through the five years of doing this podcast. And when I see other people feel these emotions that I've studied, I can think through them more logically and understand them better. And then therefore respond in a more helpful manner that has allowed me to be a better and more emotionally intelligent friend. So I think that again is a really important lesson I've learned as a result of the podcast. Then lastly, for my final lesson, in general, over the last five years, I've really grown in my appreciation for how very small changes within our diet every day can have a significant impact on our health, our mental well-being, and our outcomes. And how it is more so the smaller changes that are likely to be more impactful and lasting over time. For example, the latest neuroscience on hunger neurons and metabolic rate, I mentioned in episode 148. And in there, I discussed the concept that unfortunately, the harder we try to lose weight, the more that we restrict ourselves, the harder it can be for us to lose and keep the weight off. Sometimes when we restrict our our calorie intake or fast for long periods of time, our metabolic rate slows down to compensate and our hunger neurons will amplify in their recruitment. At the same time, the brain regions that control our impulsivity, our impulse control, go offline. So it has created this recipe as though our brain is saying, hey, what's going on? We aren't getting enough food anymore, so we are going to slow down the burning of fuel. We're going to switch into eco mode. We're going to increase our hunger and reduce our control when we are eating. We will then burn fewer calories going throughout our day. This increases the chances of us binging after the restriction, eating more than we intended to, and gaining more weight because of the dropped metabolic rate. 
It's painful to see that when we try harder to lose weight and restrict more, then sometimes the worse off we are. So truly, if we aspire to maintain a healthy weight, it is the small, gradual changes that appear to be helpful for feeling balanced, feeling in control, and to have those lasting, positive improvements in our health. So some general tips that I learned along the way over the last five years to help maintain a healthy weight are one, having a higher fiber intake because that increases satiety and that comes from foods like flaxseed, chia seed, oats, bran muffins, and whole grain bread. And eating our largest meal with the most carbohydrates in the morning or within the first couple of hours of waking because that is when our insulin sensitivity is highest. This is important because insulin is tied to food cravings. So eating more of our carbohydrates in the morning and less carbohydrates in the evening can be helpful for reducing food cravings in the evening. And if we find it is harder to eat healthier in the evenings and we crave snacks at this point in our day, then shifting our schedule to wake up earlier and going to bed earlier can be helpful here as well because then we're sleeping during the period of time when we have most of our food cravings. In addition, of course, one of my favorite topics is on the impact of magnesium on reducing our stress circuit within our brain, reducing the recruitment and activity of it, and that's called our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis, and the importance of omega-3s for reducing inflammation and promoting mental health. And if you go back to episode 150, I detail three top strategies that we can do starting today within our nutrition in order to prove our, improve our brain health and our mental health for the long term. Now I say this to my students in every one of my classes I teach and I will relay it here. And my goal is that when you are 80 years old, retired and sitting on a porch drinking your cup of coffee or your cup of tea, that you think of me. And you say, hey, Dr. Caligiuri gave me some advice that has helped me get to this age and feeling really good, and feeling really healthy. That is the kind of impact that I want to have. And I hope you feel as though I've helped you get there, or that I will help you get there. And I thank you so much for coming along with me over the last five years. Thank you for bearing witness to my life's time capsule. And I can't wait to continue to contribute to this for the years to come. I look forward to producing more, and continuing on this journey with you. I hope you all have an awesome week, and I look forward to meeting you back here for episode 159 soon. Bye for now. I'm a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of William and Mary and their affiliates.